0: Watching online. Guests, really good to have you today. Um, You need to know we're one church in two locations and we are here to win downriver to Christ. But the question is, do you have a mission? And of course you do because you're part of the people of God. So he has put us on this worldwide collective purpose to share the good news of Jesus with everybody we can. You have a part to play in that. You are a part of that story, and that story goes all the way back to the first Christians in the book of Acts. So that's where we've been. That's where we're heading back. So if you're carrying, open up to Acts chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a New Testament, free, out in the lobby after the service. Go to the VIP uh, area or the Info Central area. Uh, we're going to put it on the screen for you as well. But this is going to be some uh, incredible stories here of God's supernatural power to... Uh, to do some pretty serious stuff. We're gonna be looking at these the, the the king, the sorcerer, and the prophets and see how God works through all of them. So it really all has to do with this overall big idea to pray hard because we can't carry out his mission without his power. We've got a mission, but we need his power. So we better pray hard. So here we are. We're about 14 years into the birth of the church. Jesus has died, rose again, sent out his disciples, his apostles, all of us really to go and share the good news of of his death and resurrection with everybody so the whole world can be saved. And and it's going out, it's spreading, but it's kind of um, on the fly, if you will. It's not been super intentional, but now we're going to see the very first missionaries go to other lands on purpose. So this is like the birth of of foreign missions. It's a big deal, and we have supported missions as a church from day one. The key figure up to this time has been the apostle Peter. You might remember how God sprung him from King Herod's jail miraculously, and that's kind of the last time we see Peter in action. Uh, now the the action is going to shift to these two guys, these soul brothers, these these gospel Uh, brothers who are are sharing the message, Paul and Barnabas. Paul is still called Saul at this point. And God's first got to fill us in on what he does with Herod. I mean, Herod's got to answer for what he's done, right? So God's about ready to take him down. A little bit of a political backstory given here in Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 19. It says, Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now, he'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, Tyre and Sidon, a couple of very important coastal cities, and some sort of dispute's going on. They're ready to make peace. They now joined together, and they sought an audience with him. And after securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace, because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Okay, so this is just another one of those places in the New Testament that shows that we have This is real history here because this is something that is verified by sources outside of the New Testament. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus who writes about this very event. How King Herod threw a festival in honor of Emperor Claudius. And on the second day of this festival, he he backs up. This is what happened. Verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod... Wearing his royal robes, and Josephus fills us in that these were bright silver robes. And when the morning sun hit those robes, it, it dazzled the crowd. It says he sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, This is the voice of a God, not a man. Gotta butter him up a little bit, right? Because they need his, his food supplies. This is nothing new. Roman people would often flatter their emperors, their pagan uh, emperors, by calling them gods. And they loved it. They soaked that up. But Herod was Jewish. He should know better that he should not accept that kind of flattery, that he should rebuke the crowd. But he's blinded by his own pride, just like his robes are blinding the crowd. Verse 23, immediately, because Herod didn't give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. What? <laughs> yep. But what's interesting again, Josephus backs it up that this is what happened. But most likely what's what's going on here is he is being struck by some sort of miserable intestinal disease. Because Josephus says that Herod collapsed right in that festival, and they had to carry him out where he lingered for five days before dying. So this guy had some sort of worms that killed him. Now, my son Thomas, he loves sushi. I don't like it, it's raw fish, ugh. but. He was telling me about sushi one day, so I said, "You know what? I just saw this X-ray photo online of some guy. So you know it's real, that showed that he was just he ate some contaminated sashimi, some raw fish, and he had worms all over him—little white dots all over his body of worms." He says, "That ain't nothing. Look at this," and he shows me a video of some other guy somewhere in the world who was filled with thousands, millions of. Intestinal parasitic worms, and the doctor cuts them open and starts squeezing out these huge bundles of ramen noodle worms coming out. So it was the most disgusting thing I ever saw. So I want you to see it. Let's put that on the screen right now. No, I wouldn't do that. No, I'm not good. I don't even want to see it again. It's awful. Aren't you glad God doesn't deal with our prideful sins like that? And you know, God's not striking him down just for this one event. This is a lifetime of rebellion against the Lord. Because you know, Herod wanted to kill Peter. He tried, but God kills Herod. You know, Herod fought against the church, you fight against the church, you're fighting against God, and you lose. So Herod had tried to shut him up, shut down the church. But verse 24, the word but, but, ha. <laughs> the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Okay, so now the focus shifts to these, these uh, gospel brothers who had been teaching for a year in the city of Antioch. Remember, Antioch is a huge Roman city, the third largest in the empire, half a million people there. It really becomes the epicenter of Christianity, the base for missions as Jerusalem kind of falls away from being an important place because so many Christians had to get out of their bail because of persecution. It shifts to Antioch. In fact, the, the Jerusalem Christians had given away so much stuff to other churches that they're now poor themselves. And so Paul and Barnabas decide to receive a collection and deliver it personally to help them in their time of need. So verse 25, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem back to Antioch, taking with them John, also called Mark. Who's this John Mark guy? That's Barnabas's nephew. And he's probably a young man that we read about who was there at the time of Jesus. He's he's not mentioned my name back then, but this is the guy who ends up writing the gospel of Mark. So what I want to do with this text is we go through, we're going to look at some principles about missions. Now, what I typically do is just give you one big idea, and that's it, one idea. But I'm going to give you more. I'm going to give you extra principles today to back up that one big idea. And here's the first one. Go to where the people are. If you're going to be effective in missions, go to where the people are. Makes sense, right? So where's that? You go to the cities. I mean, that's why I came here to start this church, because there's a lot of people in this area. It doesn't mean God doesn't love folks who live in rural areas. He loves them, too. There are a lot of little villages all throughout Israel. But strategically, it makes more sense to go to the big cities, because there you can launch missions out and reach the entire region surrounding it. All right, so chapter 13 now, verse 1. Now, in that church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, okay, who Why do they need that? Well, because they didn't have their own little New Testaments. They couldn't just flip open uh, the Bible for themselves to read it. They needed prophets to give them direct revelation from God until they had a New Testament. Um, They needed teachers who could help them understand it and apply it. So we don't have prophets today speaking direct revelation from God because we have their words for us in Scripture. But we still need teachers and preachers to help us understand it and apply it. So it says, who are these leaders? Well, there's Barnabas. Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod, one of those Herods, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, so five leaders, Barnabas and Saul, we know, they're the main characters, but we don't know much about these other guys. Uh, all we know about Simeon is he's called Niger. What's Niger? Well, Niger means black, so he's probably a black guy. And it's probably like a nickname for him, not very politically correct, but it's important. You're going to hear why in a moment. Lucius he is the only thing we know is he's from northern Africa from Cyrene now Manean it's notable that he grew up with one of these wicked Herods in this dynasty of, of awful guys going back to the time of Jesus birth who were always trying to stop Christianity he grew up with one of those guys so he's either been adopted into a royal family as kind of a foster brother or maybe he's just a wealthy kid from a, an aristocratic Jewish family he grew up together with that royal family we don't know but the point is is He's from a different class of people, and it means he also is an old guy by this time. So here's where this is important. Here is a very diverse group of leaders in a very cosmopolitan church. They reflect the diversity in Antioch. Notice, because they're from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different colors, different races, different ages, different classes. And yet, they all share this unified faith and mission. Jesus brings them together. Verse 2, while they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Another one of those huge hinge points of history, because now you're going to have people sent out on mission. Now, Jesus had already told his disciples, his apostles, to go make disciples of all nations. In fact, the very word apostle literally means somebody who is sent out, right? So he sends them out. Now, there's nobody around today like a capital A apostle, one of those original guys who are with Jesus, okay? But we're all like small A apostles. Could be We're all sent out on mission, too, to make disciples. But I, I really do think that some have what you might call the gift of apostleship. Not capital A, small a, because there are some who are specially gifted and called to go to specific places, to be sent out. And so Barnabas and Saul are gonna be the very first missionaries sent out who are called to go to other lands. Now, others had already been going to other lands and spreading the message. We know that. Especially they emptied out of Jerusalem because of persecution wherever they went. Jesus told us in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, remember he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Now the way we read that in English is go as a command, like go. That's not what it says. Go is more of a, uh, as you go, make disciples. Going along, make disciples wherever you go. The command is to make disciples. So we're all called to make disciples wherever we go, but some actually go intentionally, specifically, someplace to start a new church. That's principle two. We are sent as missionaries wherever we go, but some are sent out to go to a place that doesn't have a gospel witness, that doesn't have a church, right? Some churches get started just because Christians happen to live someplace and they they start a church, but others actually go to a place in order to start a church that's why I came here I, I specifically came here to do this work now Paul later is going to write in Romans chapter 10 and this is an important verse two that we all need to know so we're going to say it out loud together he says how can they hear without someone preaching to them and how can anyone preach unless they are sent got to be sent so that's principle three a kingdom-minded church is willing to unselfishly send their best. Think about this. This major city has a church with only five leaders in it. And God sends off two of them, the two most talented guys, to leave that church. And if you're in that church, you're like, no, not those guys. I mean, send these other two over here, not Paul and Barnabas. Are you kidding me? And that's the way we think sometimes. Like, oh, it's, but it's about our church right? We need those people here. We can't send them away, and we want to hold on to them because like, man, I I taught those guys. I trained them. I poured into them. I I, I was going to use them, but it can't be about our church. We got to be more globally minded and understand this is a kingdom thing. It's God's church, and if he's got other plans for them, we got to be okay with that because if they're not sent from our church, where are they going to come from? we got to send them out. Now, when does this happen? When they're drawing close to God, when they're being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They're praying, they're worshiping, they're fasting. And so this is a Holy Spirit initiative that's going on here to spread the gospel. That's principle four. A church affirms and appoints some to service by setting them apart. We set some people apart to recognize this is more than just our own human decision. This is a move of the Holy Spirit. Okay, God is doing this. We're agreeing that this is, God has called these people to do this new work, to do this special task. And we want His guidance and His blessing. Some might call that ordination. It's like as soon as I graduated from Bible college, my home church ordained me to ministry, set me apart, recognizing, yes, Uh, I'm going to do this ministry for the rest of my life. And we have set people apart for ministry from this very church. We have ordained some. And right now today, uh, our elders are setting apart a new elder to that work with prayer and fasting and the laying on of hands. Now, i got to tell you, folks, I am not a fan of fasting. I don't like fasting at all. It is not fun. I do not enjoy it. And thankfully, it is not commanded in the New Testament, okay? That's more of an Old Testament thing that you read about. You never see it required or commanded in those New Testament letters anywhere. What you do see is in the book of Acts sometimes, fasting goes on for a special circumstance. And that, that can be a good thing. Um, we're, we're saying this is, this is something that we want to make very clear that we're serious. We're seeking God on this, but it was never what you see today, like a scheduled ritual thing where everybody's got to fast. Now, you know, much of the Christian world is going through this season leading up to Easter called Lent, right? Maybe you came from church, had Lent, and you were expected to fast from something, right? To give up meats or give up sweets, but first, you know, Tuesday, you got to pig out on punchkis, you got to party, and then the next day, you rub some ashes on your head and say, Lord, I'm sorry for eating so much and for whatever else is going on. And, you know, it's supposed to be a time of, serious um, self-reflection and repentance and uh, self-denial. And there's nothing bad about that. It's just not biblical. It's not something you have to do. But I'll tell you, I think what might be better is we had more of that kind of attitude all year long, especially when it comes to being more serious about prayer. And that's why we're embarking on this 41 days. We're going to do our own thing, our own 41 days of prayer leading up, to Good Friday when we bring both campuses together with a night of worship and prayer. But uh, for 41 days, we are going to get serious, intense, earnest about prayer. Why? Not Because it's not about self. This isn't about self-denial. Uh, this is about others. This is about seeking God's outpouring of his presence and power so the gospel can advance, so more people can come to meet him and know him and follow him. So this isn't about us, this is about other people. We wanna capture the heart of God for his mission in the world. Now, if you wanna fast during this time, that's fine. That's, That's up to you, but we're really not asking you to give up anything other than time, to devote more time to prayer, to pray on your own. And that's why when you came in, you got a prayer guide. We encourage you to use that every day. Each week, you'll get a new one, or you can go ahead and email Prayer at southpointccc.com, and we will email you out the weekly prayers and the prayer report, which has everybody's prayer requests. That goes on all year long. Did you know Anytime you make a prayer request, you fill that out, turn it in, that gets emailed out on Monday, and there's a whole bunch of people who pray for that. I pray through every one of those requests every week. And I would love to see even more of us devoted to praying for one another and for these needs for the church. It's not just about self but for the kingdom stuff, for church things, when you get together in your groups, pray together more intensely. Not just for, you know, who's sick in my family this week and, you know, th- that's all fine. But pray more about things that are about the heart of God, about mission. Show up early here every, every week before services. I know that's hardcore, right? But show up early and pray Throughout the building, pray throughout the auditorium over all these chairs that they be filled with people who need to know Jesus. In fact, on your daily prayer guide, there's a place where you can write down the names of people you know that need Jesus, that need a church, maybe used to come to church, haven't been in a long time. Pray for them and then invite them for Easter or even earlier. Okay, verse 4, the two of them, Paul and Barnabas, are sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. So this is the very first missionary journey. They went down to Seleucia, and they sailed from there to Cyprus. And they, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Now, John Mark, he was with them as their helper, and they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. Now, why is John Mark with them? They need help. John Mark is a helper. Now, maybe he's being apprenticed to become more of a leader, but at this point... He's helping them out somehow so that they can devote themselves more to preaching and teaching. So maybe he's handling the details, the organization of this trip. Maybe he's helping with all the new believers. We don't know. But thank God for humble helpers like this. Because principle five is helpers are crucial to the mission. I mean, some of you are wired for this. You don't feel gifted. You don't feel called to be in the spotlight, to be teaching or speaking or anything. But you love to come alongside those who do. Teach and preach and do other stuff. So we can't do those things without helpers. So thank God for humble helpers like that. All right, I'm gonna I want to put back up the map we've been showing here, so you can see we're talking about real places and people here. This is a map from today, the Mediterranean Sea area. So you see up there in the upper left in the west is Italy. Travel a little bit east to the right, and you see Macedonia, Achaia. What that is 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 Greece. You go down to the very bottom of the map in the south, and that's Africa. You head over east and. You get over into the Holy Land area. You see the capital of Jerusalem there of of Israel. Uh, You travel up north through Syria, and there it is. See the city of Antioch in the east on the right? It's on the border there of Syria and Asia Minor. Today we call that the nation of Turkey. All right, so let's zoom in a little bit. They're at Antioch there on the right in the east. It says they travel a few miles to Seleucia, hop onto a boat from there, sail over to that island of Cyprus, and they land at Salamis, which is the largest city on the island. But then they travel all the way over to the west side to Paphos, which is the seat of the government there. So it's an important city. And in fact, you got to know from ancient times, Paphos was a center for worship for the goddess Aphrodite, you know, the goddess of love. So you can imagine what their worship services were like, okay. And it was just wild. I mean, <clears throat> a lot of sexual immorality is going on. Priestess, prostitutes, that's how they worship. In fact, some would say that there was also human sacrifice going on. So these folks needed Jesus bad. But Paul and Barnabas strategically do not go to the pagans first, they do not enter the idol temples. Instead, where do they go? They head over to the synagogues where they would find a small colony of Jewish people worshiping. Why? Well, because they're following the pattern. That God wanted the gospel to go to the Jews first, to his chosen people first. Jesus came to the Jews first. First Christians were all Jewish, so they would go there first. But also, it just makes sense that you would go to a place where people would be more receptive to give you a fair hearing, right? I mean, of all people, the Jewish people should have been receptive. So that's principle six begin with those most receptive. They, they would be ready to hear this message, right? I mean, you do that too. You focus most of your time and effort on people that are receptive to you, that know you personally, that like you, that trust you. They're more likely to give you a hearing. But there are other people who are resistant. They don't want to hear anything you've got to say. So you don't give up on them, but you kind of, okay, give them their space. Give them some more time. You keep praying for them. You keep going back and checking on them. But you step back and you focus most of your time and effort on the people who are most likely to listen. Okay, verses six to eight. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar means son of, so he's called son of Jesus. Now, it's not the Jesus. Jesus was kind of a common name back then. Uh, The name Jesus means salvation, so he was son of salvation, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus, so an important government official. Now, the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, so he's Bar-Jesus, but also called Elymas, he opposed them, and he tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Now, when you guys hear the word sorcery, what do you think of? (laughs) You probably think of, oh, primitive superstition or... uh, fictional fantasy stories. You think of Gandalf, you know, the old guy in the big pointy hat, or you think of a Harry Potter, cute little kid, both of them with British accents, casting these very helpful spells. But no, guys, this is like the real deal. This isn't just made up stuff. There really were sorcerers, and there still are today, wizards, witches, spiritualists, Who claim to be able to contact the dead, fortune tellers who read uh, crystal balls and tarot cards, and psychic mediums who claim to, to have all this supernatural knowledge from their spirit guides and angels. This is going on right now. In fact, I just saw an article in the Atlantic Magazine just last week with this headline that caught my eye Why Witchcraft is on the Rise. Right now, why witchcraft is on the rise and how it's actually not only popular, but it it's, makes a lot of money. Here's the article. It says, casting spells and assembling altars have become quite lucrative. You can attend a fall equinox ritual organized by Airbnb. Airbnb. You can sign up for a subscription witch boxes offering the equivalent of Blue Apron for magic making. They'll send you boxes of witch stuff in the mail, just like, you know, a box of food, right? And you can buy aura cleanses from Etsy. Instagram's reigning witch influencer has 450,000 followers and has collaborated with companies like Coach, Refinery29, and Smashbox. In fact, many professional witches, can also be hired to do magic on your behalf for about 50 bucks. Most popular spells are getting you pregnant, getting you promotions, getting you proposals, and getting you court wins. Guys, that's happening right now. So you got to know God is not on board with any of that. God condemns all that. He says do not consult with those kinds of people. Don't mess around with you. You say, what's the big deal? It's harmless fun. It's just a good time. No, no, no. don't even go near a Ouija board. You are dealing with the occult. You're not dealing with the dead. You're dealing with the demonic. You are being deceived. These people are claiming to be working for God and with God. They're working against God no matter what they say. Stay away. And that's why principle number seven is your mission will be opposed. You'll be opposed because the gospel is powerful the word of God is powerful. Your testimony is powerful. So don't be surprised when you are opposed, when you are mocked and you are marginalized because you are a danger to the kingdom of darkness. There, there's a, behind all that human opposition, there, is, there are spiritual principalities going on here who don't want you to talk about Jesus. There are people who don't want your beliefs and your values because you are a threat to their lifestyle, to their worldview, to their business. You got to know that Elemus, the sorcerer, was not only a well-respected and well-feared person in that community, he was well-paid working for that government official. And Paul and Barnabas come along and they mess it all up right? They're a threat to all that. Now, some of you are like Sergius Paulus in that you're a very intelligent person, and you don't go in for all this mumbo-jumbo nonsense, mythological hocus-pocus stuff, okay? But listen, you got to know you're being misled too. You are being deceived as well by the people that you have surrounded yourself with, people who don't want you to hear the word of God. They don't want you at church right now. They want to turn you away from this faith. And so you got to be careful who you listen to, who you consult with, who you surround yourself with and make your attendance, because they could be working against God and you don't even know it. Verse 9, Then Saul, who is also called Paul. Okay, finally we can just call him Paul now. We don't have to call him Saul anymore. And I don't know why it changes at this point other than, Paul really becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. His Jewish Hebrew name was Saul, but now he's using his Roman name, Paul. So that makes sense. Or could be, you know, the word Paul literally means small. So maybe his nickname is Shorty, and they're just just making fun of him. I don't know. But Paul, he, he may be small, but he's got a big spirit in him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he looked straight at Elymas and said, now, Paul is about ready to take this guy down. He's going to call him out. And, boy, you don't think about the Holy Spirit inspiring this kind of thing. But if you're going to take somebody out, you better be sure you're filled with the Spirit. okay? Because he, he gets on them big time. And, you know, Paul is an apostle. He has the right to pronounce judgment on somebody. You and I probably shouldn't go around doing this. You are a child of the devil. <laughs> I don't know if you want Probably not the best way for us to, to approach somebody. But sometimes you got to call them out. You're not a son of Jesus. You're a son of Satan. You're an enemy of everything that's right you're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. He was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So, hey, Paul knew something about being struck blind, didn't he? Because that's exactly what happened to him. He's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. God strikes him blind. So there you go. Now try it, buddy. You know, you've been, you've been spiritually blind. Now you're going to be physically blind. So it's an object lesson. I mean, it's bad enough that you've rejected the Lord, but trying to get other people not to believe, that's awful. Now, we don't know if Elemas repented like Paul did. There is one tradition outside of the Bible that says he did become a Christian. We don't know. But we do know this miracle opened the eyes of Sergius Paulus. Say, like, okay, now I get it. And remember, he's an intelligent man. And Paul, he's a pretty brilliant guy himself. You think about how he could have been using just a bunch of intellectual arguments and logic to convince him. But sometimes you've got to go beyond all that because you're dealing with... Spiritual principles here. You're dealing with more than human resistance. These are called principalities and powers who are fighting against Jesus. And remember, there's always a spiritual power behind any human resistance. So principle eight is the mission involves spiritual warfare. Don't downplay this. You see it in the ministry of Jesus, right? I mean, when Jesus was on earth, the demons came out in full force. When the apostles were doing their thing, Demonic oppression and, and suppression was going on big time. So what do they do? They counteract all that. They confront it with miracles, signs, and wonders. A display of power. Now, we don't have those same miraculous powers to do that today. But we have the same God. And we have the same Jesus. And so we confront demonic powers through prayer. We call on this God to do miraculous things. Healings, deliverances, all these things. Because God still does that. You you see this mostly on the mission field, right? These missionaries go into these places where there's just all this spiritual darkness and oppression and people have given themselves over to these false religions and the occult. And so these missionaries gotta come in and they gotta pray hard and they preach the word and people get healed and they get delivered and amazing things happen that can't be explained any other way and the people begin to see that Jesus is more powerful than their idols and they turn and believe folks we serve that same Jesus right here and now so let's pray to him together Lord God fill us with your spirit we can't do this on our own without you we don't want to be a church that just comes in and does business as usual but that just gathers together and we did our thing but Lord we want to be we want to be a church that shares Christ as we go that sends out missionaries, Lord, that we be people who are, each one of us, God, that are sensitive, sensitive enough to your spirit to say, yes, Lord, here am I, send me. We need your power. We don't want to be just spectators watching others perform. We want to be people who are serious. <clears throat> we want to be people who are seeking you in prayer. We're singing your praise with all our heart. We pray against all opposition, all spiritual enemies, Lord, that you would, you would bind them and you would show your power. We pray for workers for the harvest field, God, that you would send out more people from this church. We pray for the people right here in our lives that we know that they need you, Lord. Open their eyes. Use us to reach them. Give us boldness. Give us wisdom. Make us powerful and effective in winning downriver to Christ. Fill these chairs with people that we invite. Because we pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to put out a challenge to you. <clears throat> Maybe you're midlife right now and you've had some success. But what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Are you willing to go for Jesus from now on? Maybe you're already retired. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? Are you just going to go fishing and traveling as tourists? Really? Or are you willing to go now for Jesus? Maybe you're young and you're wondering what you're going to do with your life. You need to know God has a plan for your life. Are you listening? Are you willing to go for Jesus? If you're someone who hasn't yet made the decision to follow Jesus, you know that you're feeling that conviction. You know you're feeling that tugging of his spirit, but you've been fighting it. And I'm telling you, knock it off. Stop fighting it. Surrender. Turn your life over to him. Trust him. Turn from your sin. Be baptized into Christ. Start a journey with him that will take you to a whole different place. So that's why every week we invite you to stand up and sing. So we'll do that now. Go ahead. And while we're singing, we have some folks down at the front who would love a chance to help you, whatever your next step is. They want to help you take it. If you need somebody to pray for you, if you need some questions answered, if you need to confess, if you need to say, I'm ready to follow Jesus, whatever it is, this is your opportunity to do something different from this point on.